There. Good morning. <laughs> All right, so we're going to be reading from Amos 5, 14 through 15. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate, e- hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despite your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fat animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noises of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Praise God. Um, yeah, I mean, good, good to be in favor of the Bible, but maybe, yeah, all right, well, how do I follow that? If you have a Bible, open to Amos chapter 5, where we'll be this morning. Um, we're going through the Bible this year from, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, from January to December. We're going all the way through the Bible in honor of our church's 75th year, so if you're visiting this morning... You're catching us right in about two-thirds, a little more than two-thirds of the way through the Bible, and we're getting to the end of the Old Testament, and we're in a section of the Old Testament now known as the Minor Prophets, or the Shorter Prophets. Uh, These are 12 books uh, that describe in more brief detail than Isaiah and Jeremiah some of the warnings that God has for the nation of Israel. Now, the Minor Prophets are arranged in their own chronological order, uh, and so the, the Old Testament kind of restarts a little bit when you get to the Minor Prophets. So just a quick chronology background, because I know you guys came to church to learn dates of the Old Testament. Um, woo! All right, but, but it will help you understand what's going on. So 2000 BC, Abraham, that's in Genesis, father of the nation, all that. 1500-ish BC, Moses, Exodus from, uh, Exodus from Egypt, let my people go, all that. 500 years later, uh, the, the establishment of the kingdom under Saul and then later under David, that's the United Kingdom. And then about 500 BC, uh, the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, exile to Babylon. So this is where we were last week, but then we're going back about 250 years in history, back to about 760 BC today with the book of Amos. And Amos asked the question, how can God's people live justly before God? Because at this point, 760 BC, the, the country's now divided into two. There's the northern kingdom, because David's grandson, a terrible king named Rehoboam, had split the country. It's kind of the main goal as a king is not to do that, but that's what he did. Split the country, 10 northern tribes, and then two southern tribes in Judah. And um, it's divided, divided kingdom. And in 760 BC, the northern kingdom is doing these things that are contradictory. They're practicing idolatry, and they're experiencing unprecedented prosperity. So they've turned their backs on God, and everything's going really well. And so they're kind of just ignoring God, and they've ignored him in how they treat especially their fellow Israelites. And God sends Amos and says, your approach to justice is terrible, and if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. And they kind of yawn at him, for lack of a better term. And so what I want to look at today as we talk about Amos, because, you know, on the surface, Amos is not a book that's directly applicable to our lives. We kind of read Amos, and a lot of it kind of goes over our head. A lot of it culturally seems so different and foreign from our experience. 
But what I want you to see in Amos is that justice is near to the heart of God and that it is so often evasive in this life. That justice is near to the heart of God and so often we get it wrong. Uh, This week is the anniversary of the attacks on September 11th on the east coast of the country. And you guys know this, but just to say it as a reminder, on September 11th, 2001, four uh, airplanes were hijacked by terrorists. Two of them were flown into the World Trade Centers in New York and destroyed not only everyone on board, but 3,000 civilians as well. A third one was flown into the Pentagon, where a number of people were killed there. And then a fourth one, uh, due to the heroic actions of people on board, was taken down uh, by the people at the cost of their own life so that it couldn't be flown as a weapon into another American uh, location. And after September 11th, as a country, we had a big discussion about justice. And that discussion was, we want justice. There should be justice. How do we get justice? Since the direct perpetrators of these crimes killed themselves, we can't try them, what do we do? Do we go find people who aided them and abetted them? How do we figure out who those people are? If they're in other countries, do we go attack those countries? Do we attack the countries of origin from the people who committed these actions? How do we know which countries to invade and to attack? When we invade, what do we look for when we get there? And if we find people that helped them, what do we do with them? Do we kill them? Do we arrest them? Do we try them? Do we keep them without trial for an indefinite period of time? How long? Do we treat them as enemy combatants or as people who've committed a crime? What about their family members? Do we kill family members of terrorists? How do we know which ones? How do we know who to trust when we invade these countries? Do we create allies? Which allies do we create? Does it matter if those allies previously committed heinous acts? Do we invade other countries that might be harboring terrorists that might do something in the future? How do we establish which countries those are? And on and on and on and on and on. And for the last 18 years, these questions of justice have really driven a lot of our foreign policy as a country. And I don't want to pretend that we've gotten all those right, because even if we had an answer perfectly to each of those questions, there's a small matter of carrying out justice with levelness and with honesty and with goodness. And we've seen that justice isn't easy, it's not automatic, and it's so often evasive. Now, that might seem like really far from your world. Like, Bob, I am not worried about that. I'm just, I'm worried about my life. Like, the politicians and the military, they can do what they want. But justice is hard to find in your life, isn't it? Like, to have an answer for what do I do for people who have harmed me? What hope do I have that justice won't con- injustice won't continue forever? How do I know uh, how God, does God care if I'm being taken advantage of? We all are born with an innate sense of justice. Daryl talked earlier about the innate sense of drive for community we have, and I think that's really true. I think we're also born with an innate sense of justice, that there are things that are right and wrong, and that reflects the heart of God, the image of God that you're created in. And so when we're four years old and someone takes our toy, we say, that's not fair, right? That's unjust, if you're my kid. (laughs) And what we see in scripture, in, in Amos today, is that God is a God of justice. And so what we're going to look at in three parts in this, in this message, in this passage, is why does justice matter to God? And then secondly, how does Israel fail at justice? And how can we learn from that? And then lastly, what does justice point us towards? What's our hope on the other side of justice? All right, so um, let's, let's get into the passage here in Amos 5.14. Seek good and not evil, 
that you may live. Amos sets down this very clear dividing line for his listeners and for us, that how we treat one another has a direct impact, not just on our life now, but on our life before God forever. And he says, so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. What's the God of hosts? Like, it's it's the God of small group leaders. It's the God of of hosts, of like table decorations or whatever. No, no, it's not that sort of hosts. In, in the Old Testament, when it talks about hosts, it's talking about uh, angelic armies. That, that's so, sort of what hosts means. What, what Amos is saying, what he's asserting, is that Israel has been claiming that God is on their side. And Amos says, no, 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 that's not how God operates, right? God is not on your side, as you have claimed. The question is whether you're on God's side. God is not a, a cheerleader, that helps us live our best life now, right? that's, that's, not, that's not the biblical view of God. The biblical view of God is, do we align ourselves before him? Because he lines up behind no man. Um, in Amos chapter 1, verse 2, it opens with the description of God in this metaphor as a roaring lion. Right? There is a lion roaring. And that's what God is described as. Not as a pet, not, he's not a chihuahua who's barking, but a lion who is roaring. This is a metaphor that uh, C.S. Lewis uses in his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that wonderful book where there's a Christ, Christ-like figure known as Aslan, Aslan's a lion, and um, he's a lovable lion. People care for him. He's tender, um, but he's not soft. And there's a, a wonderful line in the book where it says, he is good, but he is not tame. Right? He is good, but he is not tame. And I think all of us as Christians would do well to reflect that God is good, but he is not tame. He is like a lion roaring. And not just God the Father, but in Revelation 5, it says that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? that Jesus is the roaring lion as well. And um, God sends Amos as his messenger to Israel to warn them that the consequences of their disobedience will not be foreborn forever that there will be a day when they will be called to account for the way that they have treated one another in their society. And sadly, Israel doesn't listen to this. About 40 years later, Israel will be invaded by the Assyrian army and destroyed because they refuse to repent of their sin and to follow God. But that's not what they're worried about now. Like a 22-year-old who eats cheeseburgers for every meal, they feel fine, right? They, they don't see any reason to change. <laughs> Enjoy it. Enjoy it. <laughs> It is a problem that solves itself with time. (laughs) Israel was enjoying peace and prosperity even while they practiced idolatry and injustice. But Amos warns them in verse 15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. There's going to be a day of reckoning. If you do not repent and turn the other direction, Amos tells them, you will literally have hell to pay. This is an important lesson for us because there are so many times that our sin does not yield immediate consequences. We do the wrong thing and nothing bad seems to happen. Like We lie to people and they believe us and they still like us and we think, oh, I guess lying works. (laughs) Uh, We cheat on our taxes and we don't get audited and we think, well, I guess everybody does it. It must be fine. Right, we watch pornography, and no one catches us, and no one finds out, and we think, well, it doesn't matter. Right? We think that our sin has no consequences because it so often has so little consequence in the moment. And Amos is a warning for all of us 
that God's holiness is not always, uh, God's holiness does not always mean consequences in the moment, but that there are consequences. And Amos has some really severe charges against Israel for what they've done. He says they've neglected justice and ignored righteousness. So how'd they fail to do that? All right, in the next couple part, next part of the sermon, I'm going to talk about specifically what Amos charges them with. What are the social ways that they'd failed to live out the law of God in their generation? And if you're politically inclined, if you uh, follow the news or follow political issues a lot, you may hear these through the lens of your own Democratic affiliation, Republican affiliation, Libertarian affiliation. Maybe if you're part of the Whig Party, like if you haven't given up on the Whig Party yet. <laughs> 200 years out of power, but maybe they're making a comeback. You'll be tempted to think, oh, this, this either, this either uh, proves my view or uh, it attacks my view or whatever. I, like, let's make this our view, right? Let's make the biblical position our view, and then we'll hold our own political affiliations sort of loosely. And the good part about that is if you get your political views based on what Scripture teaches, your views of justice and injustice based on what Scripture teaches, you don't have to change them every couple years. You can just say, this is what Scripture teaches, this is what I believe, and whether it's in vogue or out of vogue with either party doesn't really matter. Um, so let's, let's talk about what does Amos charge them with. He says they were unjust because the rich got richer on the backs of the poor. The wealthy, according to Amos 2, 6, and 7, were selling the poor into slavery if they owed as little as a pair of sandals. They were using, the rich were using policy, uh, they were using people's moments of opportunity, their moments of weakness, in order to leverage them into uh, abject slavery for the future. They were using times and opportunities to foreclose on their property, foreclose even on their own lives as slaves. And they were doing it in order to make themselves richer while they made others at their moments of weakness poor. This is cruelty, this isn't mercy. And so the question then comes for Amos and, and for the people of Israel at the time of how is this just if you're using the law not for its intended purpose, which is to create a just society together, but using it against your brothers and your neighbors? And Amos says this is the very definition of injustice. So the question then comes back on, you know, we take it to the 21st century, and we have to ask the application question. You know, we don't have the same economic system, but we do have opportunities to get rich on the backs of the poor. Are we, are we expanding our own personal wealth? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but are we doing it at the cost of others? Or to put it bluntly, do other people have to get poor for you to get rich? Is the way that you're pursuing your career, your economic uh, situation inherently exploitive? If so, then there's a question of justice that we need to pursue. Secondly, Amos tells them, the reason that you're, un you're practicing injustice is because you're practicing bribery. Your justice system is viable. You pretend to have a law system in place, but it's just a thin veneer, because really underneath it, the rich just bribe people to get their own way. In ancient Israel at this time, um, the way that they practiced the court system is that they would gather at the town gates, and a, a plurality of, of leading citizens would hear cases and decide on what the right thing to do was. But the rich, ahead of time, would bribe people before they went to the town gates in order to get their way. So they carried out this sort of drama of justice, but they were, underneath it, the rich were just running things at the sake of the poor. This is how it's described in Amos 5.12. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gates. 
Now, remember, these are people who not only had a law system, like they had the law, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like they, they had the law, and they still pretended to abide by it, but they just, it, out of hypocrisy, practiced injustice underneath it. The problem so often throughout the world with bribery is not that there's not a legal system in place, but that it's the rich use the legal system as a way to bribe their way at the sake of the poor. This runs rampant in so many parts of the world today, and, and probably in certain ways in the United States, though thankfully less so. Um, there was a Christian named Gary Haugen who in the mid-90s was a lawyer for the United Nations. And a Christian lawyer, you know, purple cow, you know, amazing thing. Um, and, uh, and he was assigned by the United Nations to investigate the Rwandan genocide uh, after, after what happened in 1994 between the Hutsis and the Tutsis. So, I, I, mean, I got this wrong. Anyone want to help me? Hutsi, thing. Hutus and the Tutsi. I don't know, whatever. In, in Rwanda, I'm sorry. I, got, I tried to act like I knew the whole story and I messed it up. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, uh, Haugen was sent into Rwanda to investigate what had happened. And he was struck so much by how much his Christian faith informed his views on justice and how little he had heard about that in his time in the church. And he said in a, in a wonderful book called The Good News About Injustice, Haugen writes, you know, in, in American evangelicalism, we talk a lot about mercy and compassion, and we should. And we turn to stories like the story of the Good Samaritan, and we're so moved by how uh, the Samaritan comes along and helps the people who, who have been a victim of injustice. But Haugen says, in, in books like Amos and elsewhere, there's an equal amount of discussion about justice. Who is the person who's going to go arrest the robbers on the road and make them held accountable for the way so that there's not a steady string of... Uh, uh, people, uh, people who need help over and over and over again. A young man in our church named John Derby heard Haugen speak and read some of his books, and he was struck by that. He said, I, I want to do that. I want to work for justice in light of my Christian faith here and around the world. And so uh, John Derby went to law school, became a lawyer, went on staff with the organization Haugen started, International Justice Mission, eventually started his own, the Council to Secure Justice in India. And what John does, and, and now he's sort of retired, but what he did for, for a long time was he worked with uh, lawyers and police officers in India and helped them enforce the laws they had on the books and not take bribes and not live in a system of corruption. That's a justice worked out for the good and the glory of God. And for those of you guys who are younger, who are thinking, like, is there some way that I integrate my faith with justice? Yeah, there is. Like, there, jokes aside, like, there is a, a lot of good in being a Christian judge or a Christian lawyer or a Christian police officer, or a Christian politician, so that you will help bring justice in God's name in our generation. Another young man from our church, Dan Archuleta, um, had worked to bring this sort of justice. He served as a, a CHP officer, and this week was actually the 15th anniversary of him being shot in the line of duty as well. So Israel failed to practice justice. They, the rich got rich on the backs of the poor. The rich used their legal system to oppress those who didn't have opportunity for a fair representation. And then lastly, they practiced injustice because they designed a taxation system that took what the poor needed just to give it to the rich so that they could get what they didn't need. This is what it says in Amos 5.11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him, and you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Do you hear what Amos is saying? He's saying you've taken the very thing the poor need most, grain, like the, the basic building blocks of bread and of life, and you've taken that away from him as taxes, and you've turned it into houses of hewn stone. That is, you've made marble pillars out in front of your house. Like, 
You've taken the thing the poor need and you've made it into something the rich don't, not only do they not need, barely even want. And the result of that, he says, is you're not going to get to live in those houses. Judgment will come on your generation. You've taken away the bread that the poor need to live and you've turned it into vineyards so that the rich can have wine. You're not going to get to drink the wine because judgment will come. They've taken the necessities of life to build luxuries for the few. Now, okay, deep breath. We're going to talk about taxes and church. We're going to talk about money and politics and religion all at once. Sorry, I just... All right. Does this... Now, I, like, taxes are my world. Like, I'm the son of an accountant. I'm the grandson of an IRS accountant. Like, I... I don't know. Yeah, you just... You booed my deceased grandfather. That's fine. Um, you'll, you'll have to live with that. Uh, I, my first job was working at my dad's accounting office. I was helping assemble tax returns when I was 14. So this is, this is my world. Does this mean that Amos would favor an expansion of the standard deduction? Does this mean that Amos would favor Medicare for all or uh, unrealized capital gains assets? Or would he favor an expansion or elimination of the state tax? Like, all right, that's something you're going to have to work out in good conscience as you think through the political opportunities in front of you in the next few years. There is a very deep difference between tax policy in 8th century BC Israel and 21st century United States. So I'm not at all trying to draw a one-for-one of this verse proves this candidate's position on this or that. But there is a timeless principle here. What the Bible is saying is that when the rich use taxes to oppress the poor, God judges them, right? And so those of you who are strong in economics, in finance, in public policy, I, I would encourage you to think through as Christians, how can we help to offer a biblical concept of justice in the way that we approach taxes in our country and in our state? Um, and for all of us who are citizens, we're going to vote in this election and every coming election. We'll have that question in front of us as well. All right, we're done talking about taxes for now? All right, good. Um, there's a question here that might sort of sort of well up in your stomach if you've been around the church for a while. Like, Bob, this sounds like the social gospel, social justice. Like, doesn't it, why does any of this matter? Like, isn't it about just winning people to Jesus? Like, why, why should we care about justice at all? And that's a, that's a good question. Um, and I, I'm going to assume for a second that as Christians, we're able to care about more than one thing at one time, that we can kind of keep multiple windows open. And I want to describe this a little bit in terms of church history. In the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, there was this group of, I guess we'll call them liberal theologians, secular theologians, whatever term you want to use, that said, you know, we've got to get rid of all of the miraculous elements of Christianity. We've got to get rid of things that we just can't reproduce with a scientific method, and we just need to eliminate those from our belief system. Anything natural we can get behind, but anything supernatural is ridiculous and, close and uh, from a, a bygone age. And so they wanted to get rid of the miracles Jesus did from the Bible, and they cut those out. They wanted to get rid of anything from the Old Testament where God seemed to speak, because that seemed miraculous to them. And Thomas Jefferson was the sort of most famous American example of this, where he cut all those passages out of his Bible and was only left with sort of the moral code. If you know Thomas Jefferson's private life, you know he didn't really keep that moral code either. Um, <laughs> his Bible ended up just being nothing, just a cover, I guess. Um, and uh, so normal Christians, in response to that, said, wait, 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 like, we believe in miracles. Like, that's, that's a core part of our faith, that God has intervened in human history, that, like, without that, what do you have? That 
God has sent his only begotten son to save us, that he died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected on the third day. Like, those are core parts of our faith. We can't get rid of those and just be left with, I don't know, the feel-good story of the Good Samaritan. Like, it matters that sin is real, that Jesus' death and resurrection is real, that our salvation is real, that heaven is real. Like, those things are the core part of our faith. And so, in the 20th century, you ended up sort of having two camps the sort of traditional, evangelical, normal camp of, no, we believe the Bible, the, the whole Bible. And then the sort of social gospel tract that said, you know, we, we don't believe in anything miraculous, but we do think the social aspects of the gospel are important. And so these ended up sort of pitting against each other for most of the 20th century. And unfortunately, one of the results has been that evangelicals, our types of churches, have tended to become distrustful of anything that sounded like the social gospel. And so we ended up sort of rejecting parts of the Bible inadvertently, because we say people who like that part don't like the rest of the part, and so we can't trust that as well. Here's a metaphor of what it's kind of been like. Imagine that I went into your house, and I said, well, I don't believe in that couch. Let's get that couch out of here. I don't believe in that table. Let's get the table out of here. Let's get these chairs out of here. I don't believe in any of that, but I like the lamp. You can keep the lamp. I, 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 you know, that's, that's a good lamp. You can keep that. You got to get rid of everything else, and you were to say, wait, but I, I believe in in all these furnishings. And I just hugged the lamp, and I was like, I love lamp. Like, this is the only part of, the, of, your, of your furnitures I want to keep. Um, eventually, it becomes like lamp versus the rest of the furniture. Here, here's, here's my point. I want you to, to believe in the couch, in the lamp, <laughs> in, in all of those parts. And that includes the justice message of the Bible. Well, interestingly, interesting to me, Israel didn't give up on their faith throughout all this. You know, even while they were so hypocritical, even while they were practicing so much injustice, even while they were oppressing their neighbor so thoroughly, they still went to church. It's kind of like American slave owners in the antebellum South. Like, they still, even while they were practicing injustice, they still had a veneer of religiosity. In fact, in Amos 8.5, it says that while they were at their Sabbath festivals, they were thinking, when will this be over so we can go back to oppressing the poor? They were tapping their toe in the middle of church, sort of making a list on the margins of their sermon notes of the injustice they could do as soon as it was over. Imagine making a list of groceries you would buy at, during a sermon. I've done that. I've definitely done that. Um, and they were, in one hand, practicing hypocrisy. They were holding injustice while they were pretending to believe in God and worship God. And in response, Amos gives them this message in, in Amos 5.21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings your fed and animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melodies of your harps, I will not listen. What God's saying to them is, if you practice injustice, your worship is pretend. It's fake, it's hypocritical. What you need is the solution in verse 24 is to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. How do you practice this? Well, this, is a, this has to be a conviction of your heart, right? Because so much, especially in our culture, so much of your financial life, so much of how you approach business is private and people don't know. So it's up to you to really have a conviction before God that you're going to live a life of justice. And that's best served by practicing community, by being part of a life group. I hope that our church is a place a great place to be a member if you're poor, and it's a great place to be a member if you're rich. I hope it's a great place that if you're poor, that people here treat you with respect that maybe you don't experience other times during the week, 
that if you come here and you're poor, you can be part of a life group and, and people don't look down on you or up at you. They don't treat you with pity or as some sort of magical saint as a result of your poverty, but as a real person. And if you're rich, I hope this is a place where you can join a life group and people don't just see a dollar sign on your forehead where they treat you like a normal person who needs to be called to live a life of holiness just like everybody else. So I hope that you apply this personally and community-wise, but I hope you also apply it in how you approach being a citizen, if you're a citizen of our country, that they affect how you vote and how you advocate, that this passage, together with the whole council of Scripture, affects the way that you approach your political affiliation before any other identity or philosophy does, that your first thought is, what does Scripture teach, and how do I align myself to that, not the other way around? Because in the end, justice is going to come, whether we're on its side or not. When it says justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, that's not just, I hope you can bring that about. That's, God is going to bring that about. As Martin Luther King writes in his letters from a Birmingham jail, uh, this passage from Amos points to the day that justice will come, and it'll come from Jesus himself. And the question is, how do we respond to that without it being bad news? How do we align ourselves with God now? knowing that there are so many of us, all of us really, who have practiced injustice, who have practiced unrighteousness. All of us have failed to do what we should do for people near us. All of us have taken advantage of others. All of us have sinned and separated ourselves from the just God of the universe. So this needs to be, for this to be good news, we need to have hope that someone who has been perfectly just and perfectly righteous will stand in our stead. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Amos points us to Jesus because he announces that God's justice and righteousness are real, they're pervasive, and they're all-encompassing. But Jesus is the better Amos because not only does he announce that we need to be just and righteous, he says, I will be your justice and I will be your righteousness. Amos warns us about empty religion. He says that God hates our solemn assemblies when we're far from God. And Jesus says that he is the better, the true religion, the one who will uh, seek and find worshipers in spirit and in truth. Amos says that he looks forward to the day that justice and righteousness would one day be an endless river. Jesus is those. He is the one who brings the waters, the, the, the living waters, so that all of us would see justice and righteousness, not just in our generation, but for eternity before God. All right, let's, let, I'm, I'm over time. I'm going to blame it on Daryl and Julie. I'm going to say it's their fault. <laughs> but, but what I want you to do before we finish, I, I want you to examine your life in light of what Amos teaches, right, about justice and righteousness. I want you to look at the world around you and ask the questions, where do you notice justice and righteousness and a lack thereof in your world? And then I want you to look at God as the roaring lion, not that God, not that God ignores injustice, but that he speaks, and he speaks most fully through his son, Jesus Christ, who roars and calls us to repentance behind him. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you roar like a lion against injustice and, and wickedness. God, may we not plug our ears against that, but may we hear you and with fear and trembling worship you. God, would you help us to live a life of faithfulness to all of what you teach. Thank you for the forgiveness we've received in Christ. God, would you help us to live a life of holiness before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.